Okay, let's go for it. Uh, Leviticus, next. Um, and the word means pertaining to the Levites. And it basically outlines the, the, the whole system of sacrifices and religious laws that Israel was to live under. And uh, we, we saw last time, um, you know, we were in like historical narrative last time and seeing Israel, you know, coming into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai where they received the law and the old covenant was uh, put into place. And we saw that it was the tribe of Levi that was set apart for God's service. And uh, we saw that Aaron and his sons, because Aaron was a Levite, Aaron and his specific you know, sons and descendants were going to be the actual priests. But the rest of the Levites were like the priestly assistants. And, um, and their duties basically was to tend the tabernacle. Um, and of course, once they got into the promised land, the temple. And these priests and priestly assistants, the whole tribe of Levi, boiled down to being Israel's teachers. Um, they were the scribes, the ones who would write out the scriptures and religious writings. And they boiled down to being the religious leaders of Israel. And also they acted as judges in, you know, social disputes, etc., etc. And so what we're going to be seeing tonight is this whole priestly system, if you like, the religious system run by the Levites under which Israel was to live in covenant with God. So what you've got in Genesis, we saw that to be a book of beginnings. And then Exodus, the story of how Israel comes out of Egypt and starts heading towards the Promised Land, we saw that to be a book of redemption because Israel were bought out of slavery in Egypt. So it was a book of redemption, but, you know, the picture being bought out of the slave market of sin, if you like. And this book is, we're going to see really, a book of holiness. And there's an order there in Genesis, the beginnings. Everything comes into being, and of course you came into being, I came into being. Exodus is a book of redemption. Having come into being, when you're born of your mum, at a later date, you're redeemed. You become a Christian. You're saved. And now, in Leviticus, we've got a book of holiness. And can you see what it's saying? That when you become a Christian, that must then lead to a life of being holy. Or to put it another way, if you are saved, then act saved. Or to put it another way, justification must lead to sanctification. And that this book typifies the life of personal holiness and maintained fellowship with God. Okay, you're saved, you know the Lord. But how do you live a holy life and how do you maintain that fellowship with God? That is what this book is all about. And just to give you an idea of the kind of the general typology or the picture language, in the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, spiritual holiness, or the life of sanctification, is often pictured and symbolised by physical perfection. 
And I mean, as we're going to see, in sacrifices, the animals had to be sort of perfect, no physical blemish. So if you had a lamb or a goat or something, and it was going to be sacrificed, all right, it had to be a perfect specimen. Um, the priests had to be without physical deformity, um, i.e., if, if you had someone, and he might have been in the line of Aaron, but say he'd been born without an arm, or say he lost a leg, he couldn't practice as a priest, because physical perfection was the outward symbol of spiritual perfection. So physical deformity or defect kind of became a picture of sin. Of course, the point is, sin cannot enter into the presence of God. It has to be dealt with through the blood of Jesus. And again, it was one of the reasons why things like hemorrhaging, you know, if you had a hemorrhage, internal bleeding or something, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go down to the tabernacle or to the temple. Um, if you had burns, if you burned yourself, you were ceremonially unclean until it healed up. Um, even baldness <laughs> made you ceremonially unclean in certain circumstances. And of course, the picture that you've got is, is, is that, that this physical imperfection represented our spiritual imperfection, our lack of wholeness in a spiritual way. So physical deformity equaled a picture of sin. And so that's what this book, you know, this book is all about. It's to do with Right, Israel, if you like, has been born again, they've been redeemed, they were baptised into Moses when they went through the Red Sea. But now God is saying, right, now I want you to be a holy people unto me. And as we go through the book, um, there are really two main areas that we're going to be homing in on. I mean, we're going to, you know, sort of like, you know, go through it chapter by chapter. And, uh, you know, each one is going to be a dippy-dippy, you know, just a, a quickie, as it were. But we're going to see two major things that we're going to really home in on. And it's because in Leviticus we have the details of the sacrificial system under which Israel was to live. And secondly, their feasts or, or festivals or, or their holy days. So you've got these two things that we're going to be homing in on. Um, the sacrificial system, what were the sacrifices, and they all speak to us of something. And then, later on as we progress through the book, we're going to look at all the feasts of Israel. And again, all these things are symbolic of something that represents the Christian life and how it is that you, you live a life following the Lord. So, in this book, we're not dealing with history in the sense of the story. Um, I mean, we left them Israel last time at Mount Sinai, and then when we come on to Numbers next time, we're going to pick up the narrative and see their wilderness wanderings for the next 40 years. But what we've got here are basically the religious details, the setup that God gave them under which they were to live. And this basically covers a year or so after the giving of the Ten Commandments. So what we're dealing with, all the stuff that we've got written down here, was given and enacted and instituted in the year or so after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and of course, one of the things about this book, in Leviticus, it's, it's one of the books that is hardest to read in the Bible. I mean, there are lots of books that are hard to read in the Bible. I mean, some are more immediately, you know, um, 
okay to get into. But often, say if in your Bible reading, you get to Leviticus, it's that big, uh, you just got to take a deep breath and read it because it's just chapter after chapter after chapter of all these details. And it's very hard to just, as it were, get blessed by it just in the reading of it. But when you really get into it and dissect it, which is in a sense what we're going to be doing tonight, then it actually yields an incredible amount of teaching. It's quite an amazing book, but it is, um, it's, it's hard going. So, I mean, obviously I'm going to, uh, having done all the digging, going to sort of try and give it to you in a readily digestible uh, form. And, uh, right, so, so let's kick off. We're going to do the first seven chapters in one hit. And the reason for that is that it's in the first seven chapters that the sacrificial system is laid out. And remember, it was these offerings, it was these sacrifices around which the whole of Israel's worship of the Lord revolved. And we're going to home in on five main ones. I mean, there were lots of subsidiary little sacrifices for this, that and the other, all right? But we're going to look at the, the, the main five sacrifices, all right, the mainstay of the whole sacrificial system. And, uh, you know, sacrifices, offerings, it equals the same thing. And the five we're going to see are this. First of all, we're going to see the burnt offering. Secondly, we're going to see the meal offering, or the grain offering. Some of them have more than one name, so the meal offering was also called the grain offering. We're going to see the fellowship offering, or also called the peace offering. All these are sacrifices that have to be done down at the tabernacle or the temple once they got in the land. Then fourthly, we're going to see the sin offering. And then lastly, we're going to see the guilt offering or the trespass offering. All right. Now, with those five, immediately the first thing that we've got to see about them is that they fall into two categories. Although they're listed out in these chapters, all right, you know, that there are five of them, what happens is the first three are given to Moses by God in one hit. Then there's a pause, and then God gives him the last two. So what happens is God tells him about the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the fellowship offering all in one go. So they are a natural section. Then you get a gap. And then the Lord tells him about the sin offering and the guilt offering in a separate statement afterwards. So you've got these sacrifices, all right, but they fall into two sections or categories. And the categories are these. The first three, the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the fellowship one, they are all to do with maintaining fellowship with God. They are all to do with once you're in fellowship with God, this is how you maintain it and make sure you don't get out of fellowship with God. Whereas the last two, the sin offering and the guilt one, they are how you restore fellowship with God once it has been broken. Now that order is important. You've got category one and this comes first, alright, you're in fellowship with God, and this is how you maintain it. Category number one. But then, category number two, is how you get back into fellowship should your fellowship with God be hindered for any reason. Now then, think about it. At this point in Israel's history, they've been redeemed from Egypt. They've been brought out of Egypt. 
Egypt being a picture of the world, the unregenerate state, your non-Christian life. Pharaoh was in charge of them, and he's a picture of Satan, the god of the world. So they've been redeemed from Egypt, the world, and they've been set free from Pharaoh, Satan. And also, they've been redeemed from the taskmasters, you know, the slave masters who used to whip them and beat them and make them work ever so hard. And that was a picture of personal sin. So they've been redeemed from these three things. They've been brought out of the world, out from under the power of Satan, and out from under the power of personal sin. So here, in this book, at this point, Israel are, if you like, a newly redeemed people if you like, new converts, okay? They've only, very recently, as it were, been born again. So the typology is being a new convert. Therefore, once you've got to know the Lord, been set free from all those things, your priority is then, having been made right with God for the first time in your life, the priority then is staying right with God and maintaining fellowship with him. That is the first priority of the Christian life. The sense here is not sinning and having to get right with him again. Can you see that? That maintaining fellowship and staying in fellowship comes before the need to get back into fellowship when you do sin. So the priority is don't sin. That is the picture we've got here. Now then, the sin offering and the guilt one are available if you do sin. Then that is your way to get back into fellowship with God. But the push here is that you get converted, having been made right with God, the push is we're duty-bound to stay right with God. Now then, if we sin, there's a way back. I mean, for instance, in 1 John, um, he says this. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, can you see what John is saying there? He's saying, look, your Christians don't sin. That's the mandate don't sin anymore. But if you do sin, there's a way back into fellowship. And that is what is typified by the order of these sacrifices. The first three, as we're going to see, are all to do with maintaining the fellowship with God you've already got. The last two, the second group, are how you get back into fellowship if sin has got in the way. And so again, we're seeing there the mandate of personal holiness before the Lord. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, obviously, we fail, we sin, and when we do, if we confess our sins, he forgives us. But the mandate, the commandment to us, is don't sin anymore. That is always what we're aiming for, to not sin. But with the absolute reassurance that when we do, there is forgiveness and restoration. Okay, so let's let's now actually go through these sacrifices and see them um, in 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 more detail. Now then, first of all, the burnt offering. Okay, now let's go through what exactly was this. Now for the burnt offering, the worshipper, like you were a worshipper, all right, and what you do is you bring an animal to the priests in the tabernacle, or once they were in the land into the temple, all right, and you bring 
a sacrifice and it's according to your wealth and it could be anything from a bull all right now that's for the rich people because bulls were expensive in israel as it were right down to a turtle dove or a pigeon all right it could be anything from a bull right down to a turtle dove or a pigeon depending on what you could afford now the animal whether it was a bull or a turtle dove a pigeon or something in between all right had to be male and it had to be without blemish all right so it had to be male and it had to be physically perfect also it had to be a domestic beast not a wild one now the point is there's a difference between a wild bull and a pet bull you see the point and turtle doves and pigeons i mean they're tame anyway but the point is whatever you bought it had to be domestic it had to be tame and not wild in any way at all and assuming all these conditions were met in the actual sacrifice that you bought you then laid hands on that animal whatever it was you laid hands on it before it was given to the priest and the laying on of hands here is a picture of identifying with it it's a picture of i'm making myself one with this sacrifice now what happened then is that the priest would then kill it and it was death by knife all right it was the shedding of blood it wasn't its neck run or anything like that its throat was slit whatever and its blood obviously will be collected in a basin and then it will be like you know sort of sprinkled around various places on some occasions actually over you all right and then that having been done the animal was then placed into a fire that was burning all the time a, a special fire in the tabernacle that never went out okay and with that being done the sacrifice was completely consumed because it was burnt up nothing was handed back to the worshipper who brought it all right so this sacrifice you gave it and nothing came back to you at all now the picture that we've got here because of course all that is symbolic of something and what is it symbolic obviously there's a sense i can only tell you what i think it's symbolic i mean you might think of other things but you know sort of obviously i'm, I'm doing the teaching so you're going to get my uh, my opinion i guess but here we've got a picture of jesus's total surrender to the father's will that is the picture we've got here the utter surrender of jesus to his father's will i mean you know sort of like you know obviously the animal was male and it was perfect when jesus was male he was perfect absolutely sinless the animal had to be tame and jesus was friendly towards mankind can you see if an animal is tame it's friendly towards mankind quite at ease with it a wild animal is antagonistic to mankind jesus came as god become a man and he was friendly towards man you know sort of like um you know sort of peace on earth and goodwill to all men that is what the coming of jesus was all about so he was a tame animal to that extent and the point is his giving of himself was absolutely total and it was unto death and the animal was killed and nothing was given back to the worshiper who bought it this animal this sacrifice it was totally and utterly consumed and jesus's service to his father absolutely consumed him just like the fire consumed this sacrifice even to the point when the disciples knew that jesus on one occasion was was hungry because he hadn't eaten for ages 
And they were saying, we'll go and get some food, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus said, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was absolutely consumed with his father's will, obedience to his father. And with the laying on of hands on this beast, all right, the worshipper identified, became one with the sacrifice. We have been made absolutely one with Jesus. We are one with him. We are completely identified with Jesus. We are one with him, as the New Testament says. And so, therefore, we are one with Jesus. Jesus is totally surrendered to God. He is totally consecrated to his Father's will. Now then, we are saved. Because we've trusted in Jesus as our Saviour, the new Christian is immediately right with God. He's never been before. How does he maintain that fellowship with God? How does the new Christian stay right with God? Well, it's by being totally submitted to the Father, just like Jesus was. So there's the first thing. If we are to maintain fellowship with God, rather than sinning and then needing to be restored again, the first thing is complete surrender to him. And of course, um, Paul in Romans 12 talks about that we are to be living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. So we're not actually dead. We're not actually laid on the altar with our throats cut and bleed to death and then burnt. But the point is, there, what Paul says, be as dedicated to God as if that had happened to you. And of course, the point is, we have died with Christ, haven't we? And so there you have, in the burnt offering, the picture of the complete surrender of Jesus to his Father and how that is to be reflected in our lives as well. Living the Christian life, the life of holiness, begins with being completely surrendered to the Lord. Then secondly, we move on to the meal offering. Now, the meal offering, or the grain offering, had two names, <coughs> was um, a non-blood sacrifice. There's no blood in this one. And it constituted of um, the worshipper coming along and bringing with him grain, flour, and bread with no leaven in it. And what happens is that a handful of this, all this stuff that you've bought in the meal offering, a handful, right, you, you give it to the priest, the priest takes a handful of it and he gives it to God. And in it goes in the fire and it's given to God. And the rest is kept by the priest for himself. And later on he goes home and eats it, all right, so it's his dinner. Now, the picture that we've got here is Jesus as, as he himself claimed to be, the bread of life. Because the grain offering, you not only brought bread that was already made, but you brought that which makes bread, the grain and the flour, you know, sort of blah, blah, blah. And it's a picture of Jesus as the bread of life. And do you remember what Jesus said about the corn of wheat? Because how do you get bread? Well, the wheat has to go through a certain process. And what it has to go through, the corn of wheat has to go into the ground and die. And in so doing, it ceases to be one grain of wheat and it becomes a harvest of wheat. You know, that then, you know, sort of provides uh, in a very increased way. And of course, the point is that, that Jesus is the provider of every need. And what we've got here is not Jesus' personal surrender to God. We saw that in the burnt offering. What we've got here is Jesus' giving of all he was and all he had in service to other 
people. So what we have here isn't Jesus's personal surrender to God, that was the burnt one. What we've got here is the fact of Jesus making everything he had and everything he was available for the blessing of other people. For instance, a handful of the offering went to God, all right, because God always gets the first of everything, but the rest of this sacrifice went to the priest. Now then, the priests didn't have secular jobs like other people in Israel. They were full-time servants of the Lord. They got their wages from the people they led. So here, this sacrifice or offering was part of their giving to the full-time priesthood. So what you've got here is an aspect of personal giving. And of course, what it boils down to here is Jesus, he was sinless, and remember this bread had no leaven in it. Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin, all right? It's a picture of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, becoming a servant to other people, all right? Um, one who gave everything in order to bless the people who were around him. So the burnt offering represents Jesus being submitted to God the Father. The meal offering represents Jesus as the servant and the giver to his fellow human being. Because this sacrifice isn't all given to God, most of it went to the priest. The priest was a full-time worker in Israel, it was part of the giving of the people to those who led them. So here, the picture is Jesus' service and giving to other people. And therefore, if we are to maintain fellowship with God, if we are to live the Christian life, if we are to live holy lives, then that's the second aspect. We've got to be people who give. People who are available to serve those around us. So obviously, in the burnt offering, that tells us we must be sold out to the Lord, consecrated to him, submitted to the Father's will, and then secondly, the meal offering shows us that that means that everything I am and everything I have has got to be available for the benefit of my fellow man. This is loving your neighbour, isn't it? And of course, that ultimately is what Jesus came to do. So there is the second aspect of living the Christian life, a life of self-sacrifice for the benefit of other people. If we're surrendered to God and we love him, how's that going to show itself? we're going to love other people and be prepared and available to serve them. Right, now thirdly, we come on to the peace offering. Now, it's um, one thing to, to just note here, and we'll be back to this fairly soon. The peace offering is listed as number three in God giving Moses the sacrifices. But in the order that the sacrifices were actually carried out, this was in actual fact the last one, and we'll see why in a minute. It's given with the burnt offering and the meal, all right, because it's all the same thing. But this one was actually the sacrifice that came very, you know, right at the end, and we'll see why. Now then, the, the distinctive thing about this peace offering um, is, is that the animals that were sacrificed became a corporate meal that all the worshippers who brought the sacrifices ate together with the priest. So here, the sacrifice, you know, the animals and the beasts were brought. They were given to the priest, all right? They didn't go to the Lord, and they didn't wholly go to the priest. What happened was, these sacrifices became a massive meal that they all ate together, the priests and the people. Now, for this offering, 
it had to be a bull or a lamb or a goat. And for this one, you had to kill it yourself. All right? Now, this would have been done by the bloke as the head of the house, all right, on behalf of his family or himself or whatever. So you had to kill the animal that you, you brought yourself. Um, also, for this sacrifice and none other, the animal could be female. Could be. Didn't have to be, but could be. And the reason for that is we're going to see that um, there you've got the closest human friendship going. The friendship between man and woman in marriage. And what you've got here, the symbolism of this particular sacrifice, is that Jesus, through his death on the cross, has reconciled us to God the Father. We've been made right with God. We've been reconciled with him. And because we've been reconciled with him, we're in right relationship with him. But in so doing, Jesus has provided the way for us to be reconciled with each other as well. This sacrifice, you brought it along, you killed it, and then you shared it with your brothers and sisters, the other worshippers. It became a communal meal. And what we've got here pictured is right relationship with your fellow worshippers. That your relationship has got to be right with them. Um, but in order for this to happen, it's got to be death to self. Because the only way you can stay right with your brothers and sisters is if you're willing to die <coughs> yourself. And the thing about death to self here is pictured in the sense you had to kill your sacrifice. You had to take the knife to the throat of whatever animal you brought along. And remember, the sacrifice, you identified with it. So it's a picture here of death to self. And so, what we've got here, Jesus is obviously right with his brothers and sisters, because he's never sinned against anyone at all. But in the same way, we have got to make sure that we stay right with each other and that we stay right with whoever it is we have to do uh, with in normal day-to-day -day life. And so what we've got here is that in order to maintain fellowship with God, we've got to make sure that we remain in right relationship with each other as well. So, so far, we've got three aspects of how you live a holy life, of how you live the Christian life. Number one, the burnt offering, consecrated to God. Number two, the meal offering, given to other people to serve them and to give to them. And then thirdly, the peace one, making sure that your relationship is right with those people around you. And the ironic thing is that you can be available for serving people, but still not be in right relationship with them. Because at the end of the day, you could almost end up, you know, serving someone because you think, well, it might make them feel guilty or something. You can see, it's a separate issue. Because one can be all religious. You can serve other people just because it's the religious thing to do. So here, this sacrifice speaks to us about the fact that we've really got to make sure that we're right with people around us and that there's no undealt with sin in our hearts towards them. So those three come as category number one. That is how you maintain fellowship with God. All right. But obviously, uh, salvation, our Christian life, is sin-proof because it caters for sinners. Therefore, there's got to be everything we need in place for when we sin. And so that brings us on to the next two, the sin offering and the guilt one. And we'll do the sin offering first. 
Now then, the sin offering, this, this is straightforward in the extreme, this is. Um, what happened was that, that, that the, you laid hands on the animal that was going to be killed. You've sinned and you need forgiveness, all right, for that sin. You bring the beast, whatever it is, you lay hands on it. And in identifying with that beast that's going to be slain, your sin is transferred to the beast, all right? And that animal pays the price for your sin. It dies. You don't die, but you've sinned. The animal hasn't sinned, but the animal dies. It dies for your sin. So its blood is shed in order for you to be forgiven. And then this blood that's been shed is taken and the priest throws it all over you. So you bring your lamb or whatever and its throat is cut and all the blood was gathered in the bowl. Now that blood has been shed for the forgiveness of the worship of sin. The priest then took the bowl with the blood in and he poured it all over the worshipper so that the worshipper was covered with the blood. And that was the sign that his sin had been taken away and that he was back in fellowship with God. The whole animal was then burnt. All right, the whole animal, the carcass, was taken and it was burnt because it was given 100% to the Lord. And of course, the point, the picture here you've got is Jesus, our sin bearer, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. He died in our place. We're covered by his blood. We're forgiven. And the animal was then burned and given to God completely uh, because the point is that, that, that we have no part whatsoever in dealing with our own sin. Can you see, the worshipper plays no part in this. The animal does it all, the lamb does it all, because the lamb belongs to God. And so it's the picture here of Jesus alone died to deal with our sin, and we can have no part in it whatsoever except to receive the benefits of it. So the animal was slain and then given to God. Not given back to the worshipper, because there was nothing for the worshipper to do. All the worshipper could do was to have the blood sprinkled over him. And when it comes to us being forgiven, whether it's at the moment we become Christians and are forgiven for the first time, or be it we've, you know, daily we confess our sins and get forgiveness again, we receive it purely as a free gift from God to us. There's nothing we do except receive it as a free gift. So then, the point is, when we sin, every time we sin, we must come afresh to the sin-bearer, to Jesus, we must confess our sin so that we can be washed again in his blood and cleansed and forgiven. And that is the symbolism of the sin offering. Confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then, lastly, the guilt offering. And this one, all to do with putting sin right, but a little bit more involved, a different aspect of it. Because what happened in the guilt thing is that it involved specific confession of sin. The sin offering was very general. The guilt offering that you then move on to, you start to get very specific. And here the worshipper had to actually start naming the sins that he needed forgiveness for. And also, he had to go about restoration to anyone who he'd sinned against. So in this sacrifice, he was duty-bound that, say, say he'd nicked money or he'd swindled somebody, he was duty-bound to restore the money that he'd nicked 
but to add 20% to the amount. Now that's restitution, i.e. in this sacrifice, the duty of if you've sinned against others, the duty to make up for that and to put it right and to do everything you can to, you know, to put the circumstances right is incumbent upon you. And so in this sacrifice, how it speaks to us is that when we've sinned, we must make any amends for it that we are able to do. Obviously, Jesus forgives our sin. We can't do anything towards that. That we receive as a free gift. But nevertheless, we must make amends. So the point is, I mean, if, I, if I've sinned against somebody, I mean, so I've lost my temper with you and been horrible to you. I mean, obviously, I've got to go to God and confess that to him. Of course I have. The sin one. But at the end of the day, I've got to make amends to you, haven't I? I've got to come and make that sin right with the other people whom it was against. And so the point is, if the sin offering shows us that in order to get back into fellowship with God when we've sinned, if, if that one shows us that we've got to humble ourselves and confess our sins, then the guilt offering shows us that then we've got to move on and we've got to actually then repent of our sins and turn away from them. You know, not just a perpetual, oh, well, I've confessed it, so now it doesn't matter almost as if sinning ad infinitum is okay, because obviously you can confess it. Here, it's incumbent that we make amends for sin and that we turn away from it and make restitution to other people. So there, in these two, we've seen how you maintain fellowship and stay in fellowship with God. But these two show us, right, what do you do when you've sinned and you've got out of fellowship with God? Well, it's confession of sin to God and then it's repentance from sin, turning away from it and making amends to the people whom we've actually sinned against. So there's the two aspects of getting back into fellowship with God, confession and repentance and making sure that we're right with um, other people around us. And so what you've got with these five sacrifices, you've got different aspects of what Jesus has done and different aspects of what it means for us to follow him. And you remember earlier I said that although the peace sacrifice was given like number three, but in actual fact it came last, the reason that that's the case is because at the end of the day, you can only be right with other people around you. You can only be in right fellowship with your brother and sister if all the other four things are in place. So at the end of the day, if we are, as 1 John speaks about it, to be living in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship with each other, what does that require, the peace thing? It requires that we're surrendered to the Lord. It requires that we're given in service to those around us. It requires that we live in confession of our sins and it requires that we turn away from sin and make amends for it wherever we're able to. Then, with those things under our belts, we can really say, I am living in fellowship in the light with God and with my brothers and sisters. So that's the first seven chapters. There is the system of sacrifices that Israel was given 
in this book. And we can see the different aspects, the whole thing, it's speaking of how we live the Christian life, how to be holy. And also there are other kind of like fringe offerings and sacrifices that you get that we're not going to go into, but there were drink offerings and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to go into them. So anyway, that was, that was chapters one to seven. So that's, that's the first chunk. Later on we'll be coming to the next chunk. But now we're just going to very quick dippy through um, you know, the remaining chapters. Um, chapters eight to nine, uh, tell of, of how Aaron and his sons were actually consecrated into the priesthood, uh, how you know their clothes, we saw this last time, didn't we, all their clothing, and their actual inauguration into duty. So if you like, chapters 8 to 9 give us the actual establishment of the priesthood. Um, in chapter 10 you have a story that two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, set out about their newly given duties as priests and they disobey the Lord as um, in the way that God told them to do the sacrifices. They go against chapters 1 to 7 and do it their own way, and God strikes them dead, <laughs> you know, because he wasn't going to have them messing around with his sacrifices. So the picture there is very much that spiritually, we are obviously, because we've got free will, free to do things our way rather than God's way. But if we do, spiritual death is going to be the result. It's as simple as that. So, uh, you know, sort of don't, don't mess with the word of God there. Uh, chapter 11, um, you, you have various teachings on clean foods and unclean foods because, you know, there were foods that you could eat and foods that you couldn't eat and, and, and it goes into that if you touch a dead body you're defiled and so that makes you ceremonially un unclean as well. Um, again, we're not going to go into the details, I'm just telling you what each chapter, the area that it covers. Um, chapter 12, uh, you have instructions concerning childbirth. You know, because I mean, obviously, uh, you know, sort of childbirth had to be done in a ceremonially clean way. And obviously there were certain dangers to be avoided as well. So you get um, a chapter there on childbirth. And uh, then in chapters 13 to 14, you, you have very detailed information on two things. You firstly have information on how the priests were to diagnose leprosy. Because leprosy, the form that it's dealing with here, there are forms of leprosy that aren't contagious, but there are other forms that are very contagious. And the priests are here given how they diagnose a leper. And that they would have put the leper outside of the camp. Obviously they would have be isolated, because um, obviously if they'd have stayed amongst the people, you know, you know, the whole of Israel would have, you know, had the disease. And, and so the priests, are given instructions for how you diagnose leprosy and what you do with the person who's got it, i.e. separating them. Then they get equally detailed instructions of what they were to do when a leper had been healed. Alright? Now leprosy doesn't heal itself. It's not like having a bout of flu that can go away. If you got leprosy, barring a miracle you got it, it doesn't go anywhere. So in chapter 14, the priests are told what to do when a leper was healed by God. Now, there's something tremendously significant there, because in the Gospels, when Jesus healed a leper, and then later on went and healed ten at once, it caused a real stir amongst the Jews, and particularly amongst the leaders and the priests. And the reason was for this. In the whole of Israel's history, right up to the time of Jesus, alright, chapter 13, diagnosing lepers, had been used countless times. 
Chapter 14, what you do when a leper is healed, had never been used. Not once in Israel's history had a leper ever been healed. Yeah, you got the instance, you know, as we're going to see, you know, when Miriam challenged Moses and she was struck with leprosy temporarily and then healed, but that's different. You never had a proper healing of a leper in Israel until Jesus came on the scene. And that was one of the reasons why, under the teaching of the elders, um, that, that the healing of a leper was, was said to be a messianic sign. Because lepers had never been healed in Israel's history. And Jesus comes along and suddenly they're having to, to use chapter 14 of Leviticus all over the place. And they'd never, ever, ever had to use it before. So that's just a little sideline there on the Gospels. Uh, chapter 15 basically lists a hundred odd ways to get ceremonially unclean. All right? So you can read that at your leisure. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, chapter 16, you have the account of the very first Day of Atonement, or what the Jews call Yom Kippur. Uh, with all the sacrifices that you get there, and there will, we'll be back to that um, a bit later. Um, in chapter 17, you have uh, instructions on the way that the various sacrifices were to be made, you know, kind of the attitude they were to be done in, and, you know, the actual method of doing it. And uh, you get there a, a real emphasis from the Lord that his people were not to eat blood, that they were absolutely forbidden to eat blood, and of course the reason being that the life is in the blood. Um, in chapter 18, you get a list of uh, the, the, the practices that when they eventually got into Canaan, a list here of various practices that the Canaanites were going to be doing, which the Jews are here commanded to have nothing whatsoever to do with, mainly sexual, all right? Uh, the Canaanites, as we'll see as we get you know, nearer to that part of the story, well, I mean, we're really into occultism and devilry of every kind, and that an awful lot of it was tied up with fertility rites and immorality and stuff like that. So you get a chapter here of all the immoral, satanic practices that Israel would have nothing to do with when they encountered it in, in Canaan. Um, Chapter 19 and 20, you get um, a miscellaneous list of laws and various sins to be avoided and various punishments for various sins. Um, but of particular note, in, in, in chapter 19 and verse 18 here, you get the, the, the point where God says to Moses, uh, love your neighbour as yourself. So, so that's, that's at this point in the Pentateuch where that, that you know, love your neighbour as yourself, that's the first time that you get that phrase here. Um, chapter 21 and 22 are just more on the priesthood and on sacrifices. These are all kind of like what you would call miscellaneous instructions that, I mean, you can read them, but obviously we're not going to go into them in detail there. Now then, chapter 23 brings us on to something that we are going to go into in great detail, because it's chapter 23 that you have all the feasts of Israel. So, there are seven of them, and we're going to go through them, all right? So, chapter 23, you have a listing of the seven feasts or festivals that together made up Israel's religious calendar, if you like. And, uh, you know, again, we'll see the significance of it, and I, th I think you'll find it quite, quite interesting. Well, I think it's interesting. Well, if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing it, would I? But I just hope you find it as interesting. Right, okay, now, seven festivals or feasts, okay. Now, the first one is the Passover. And it was this festival that kicked off Israel's calendar. From the time that the Passover was instituted, the night they left Egypt, 
it became the first day of the first month in their year. So this was the equivalent of uh, January the 1st to them. And, uh, and of course it was going back, we've seen it, when God brought them out of Egypt, that what happened was that, um, you know, sort of like they'd sacrificed lambs and they'd daubed the blood on the lintels of their houses and doors, blah, blah, blah. The angel of death passed through Egypt and the firstborn, you know, of, of humans and cattle and beasts, etc., the firstborn all died, except where the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb and then passed by and the death of the firstborn didn't occur in that house. And so hence the Passover, because the angel of death passed over, you see, it's where the name actually came from. And of course that was the kind of the beginning of the Exodus, that was the night that they actually came out of Egypt and, and started heading towards the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And, um, you know, and so there we saw last time that when they ate this, because they slayed the lamb and they, they daubed its blood and then they cooked it and they ate it and it became a feast. And they ate it with bitter herbs and bread that didn't have any leaven in it. And uh, you'll remember that they had to eat it with holding their staff in their hands and with their sandals ready for a journey and their tunics tucked into their belts. Because the point was the next day they were going to leave Egypt. And so it was, it was a meal eaten, a feast eaten, in the posture of being ready to leave at any minute. And, and of course the picture there obviously is becoming a Christian. The blood of the Lamb and the angel of death passes over. You've been transferred out of you know, the kingdom of death and darkness and into the kingdom of God's life and God's light. And so it's a picture of becoming a Christian, the blood of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the point about it being eaten ready to go on a journey is that when you become a Christian you're starting a journey the rest of your life following the Lord. And one's got to be ready at any moment to, to go as the Lord leads. So that was the significance, the symbolism of the Passover. Now then, the second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now then, unleavened bread, this feast lasted for seven days and it started the day after the Passover. So you had the Passover, the lamb, the blood of the lamb, ready to go on a journey, blah, blah, blah. And then the next day after the Passover is the first day of unleavened bread. And that was a feast that lasted for seven days. And the point is that there was to be no leaven anywhere. So for that seven days, all the food you ate it had to have no leaven in it at all. And the way they kicked it off is that they had to literally go through their houses or their tents because they're in the wilderness to start off with from top to bottom looking for even the tiniest speck of leaven they had to it was a total spring cleaning to get rid of any leaven that there might have been around now then i've already said it leaven in the bible is a type of sin and so here all right passover represents getting born again becoming a christian what follows immediately on becoming a christian Unleavened bread, getting rid of leaven, getting rid of sin. It's a picture of once, if we're a Christian, then we start turning away from sin in our lives. Sanctification follows justification. If you're saved, then that's saved. If we've been saved from the penalty of sin, which we have, justification, then we need to go on to be saved from the power of sin. Sanctification, that is the picture. Again, holiness, personal holiness in following the Lord. So, becoming a Christian, Passover, means living a holy life, unleavened bread. And seven days, because seven days is a week, and kind of seven in the Bible is completeness, and for the rest of your lives, completely follow the Lord. Now then, the third feast is the Feast of 
first fruits. Now then, got to get this right. The feast of first fruits started the day after unleavened bread, all right, overlapping unleavened bread, and therefore it was two days after the Passover. So you've got Passover, then the next day unleavened bread starts, that goes on for a week. So the second day of unleavened bread and the third day from Passover, you get the Feast of First Fruits, all right? So you've got these, these, these ones are all coming, overlapping each other, all kicked off by Passover. Now then, what we've got here in the Feast of First Fruits um, is it lasted just the one day, like Passover, it's just a one-off meal, all right? Unleavened bread went on for a week, but this, like the Passover, was a one-off meal, okay? And what you did is that you, you had a, a, a sheaf which was made up of, of kind of the growing harvest. So your harvest would, at this time year, just be coming through. So you go and pick a handful of, you know, like the, the harvest that's, that's just beginning to spring up in your fields, okay? And uh, what you do is, is you go out and you waved it. There's a wave offering. They waved it to the Lord. And why they were doing this, it was in anticipation for the fact that later on in the year, the full harvest would come in. So that's why it was called first fruits. They took the very beginning of the harvest and they waved it to the Lord and it was the sign that this is the first fruits of a big harvest that is going to follow later on. All right. Now remember, this occurred on the third day after the Passover. Now then, Jesus died on the cross as the Passover lamb because Passover is symbolic of the death of Jesus. All right. Now then, Jesus rose again on the third day. The third day was the Feast of Firstfruits. And what happened on the Feast of Firstfruits? The first sheaf of the harvest was presented to God as assurance and a sign that a much greater harvest was going to follow at a later date. And so what we've got here is that Jesus died and he rose again. He overcame death, the first man who overcame death. He then went back to the Father and he was glorified. But the point was, he was the first fruit. The fact that he, the fact that one man got to heaven, meant that at a later date, millions upon millions of other human beings were going to get to heaven. Jesus was the first fruits of a much greater harvest that was going to follow later. He's glorified, well one day we're all going to be glorified as well. And uh, it's, it's a picture for us that we are God's harvest. We belong to him. A farmer had a harvest, it was his, he planted it, could do what he liked with it. Well. Where God's harvest? Why are you born again? Well, because I decided to follow Jesus. Yes, of course. Who planted that in you? Who planted you? God did. We belong to him, lock, stock and barrel. We're his harvest. He can do what he likes with us. So there you've got surrender again. You see the Feast of first fruits. Jesus, when he rose again from the dead on the Sunday morning, do you remember when Mary saw him, he said, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to the Father. And yet later on that day, people could touch him. So it was then that he ascended to the Father. I mean, yeah, he ascended 40 days later in full view, but Jesus ascended on the Sunday, and it was the Feast of Firstfruits. He went back to the Father. He was the Firstfruits given back to God as the sign that the harvest, the rest of the harvest, was going to come in much later on. So, good, isn't it? Anyway, the next feast is the Feast of Pentecost. Now, this is called Pentecost from Pente, which means 50, all right? Um, and it's 50 days after first fruits. So we've had Passover. The next day, unleavened bread. So it's getting born again, all right? Um, then unleavened bread, living the life of holiness. That goes on for seven days. Then the day after first fruits, that's been glorified. See? 
saved from the um, penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, saved from the presence of sin. See? Justified, sanctified, glorified. It's all there in the first three feasts. Now, we go 50 days on and we get the Feast of Pentecost. And this was when the harvest came in. This was their harvest festival. And what they had is there were various wave offerings. They were all out there waving frantically to the Lord, like you do in first fruits. Only there was a difference. In the Feast of First Fruits, what you were waving to the Lord was a sheaf of individual grains. So what you got, your harvest was just coming through. You went out there and you got individual grains of wheat and were waving them to the Lord. Now what happens here, the harvest is in, alright, and now they wave two loaves of bread. So First Fruits, you were waving the beginning of the harvest individual grains. Now, that spoke of Jesus, because Jesus ascended as an individual, alright? And we all get born again as individuals, the individual aspect of salvation. But Pentecost, they were waving two loaves of bread. So here, the individual grains are now all merged together, and they've become a loaf. So here, we have not your individual relationship with the Lord, that's all the other feasts. Here, we've got the fact that we become part of a community of God's people. We merge in, not to the extent that we lose our individuality, of course not, but we become part of a larger whole, in much the same way that individual grains become part of the other grains when they become a loaf of bread. And of course the picture that we've got here is that the, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost came and the disciples were all baptised in the Holy Spirit and they became the Church of Jesus Christ. They became the body of Christ. So can you see the picture we've got here in Pentecost? Jesus, as the first fruits, has gone to the Father. A harvest is coming later on, and you've got there the individual aspects of salvation. Now, on Pentecost, the harvest comes in. All the grains are made into loaves of bread, and there are two of them. The individual grains have become part of a loaf. The individuals, all these millions of individuals throughout history, who are the harvest that is going to follow, are now all brought into oneness with each other because they've become the body of Christ. And whereas we are saved individually, of course, nevertheless we are part of the body of Christ. Every believer who has ever lived or ever will live, the body of Christ, a loaf of bread. And can you see there you have the corporate aspect of being a Christian, that you're baptised into the body of of Christ. And that is what happened on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came on them, and it was then that the church came into being. Now then, so why two loaves? You can see, see the idea of a loaf, the individual grains have become a loaf, they've merged with all the other grains, but why two loaves? Well, of course the answer is this, because what happened in the church? Israel had been rejected by God because they didn't accept that Jesus was the Saviour, so the Gentiles were grafted in. But the point was that salvation was originally to the Jews, is still, in, you know, is still to the Jews in the church age, and is going to be to the Jews in the future age. So it's two loaves, Jews and Gentiles. See? Because salvation was always meant to go wider than just Israel. Israel kept forgetting that. Israel thought salvation was just for them. But it wasn't. It was always to go beyond them to the Gentiles as well. So two loaves because you've got the Jews and the Gentiles, and both are equally part um, of, of God's plan. So there, what have you got? In, um, in Pentecost, you've got a picture of being baptised in the Holy Spirit. When we receive the power of the Holy Spirit and are baptised into the body of Christ and become part of the church. And um, 
boom, boom. All these aspects of the Christian life. Absolutely brilliant. Now then, the, um, the next uh, feast is the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the main details for this you actually get in the Book of Numbers, but it's mentioned here, so we're going to do it here, although it's detailed in Numbers, but don't worry about that. And here, we now have a gap of four months. So after Pentecost, four months go by, and we are in the seventh month of Israel's year, okay? And uh, it's now that the remainder of the feasts take place. Now then, what we've got to get here is that so far we've had Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. They were all grounded in Israel's history, all right? You know, the Passover and that had already all happened, okay? But this one, the Feast of Trumpets, and then the two after it, the Day of Atonement and Tabernacles, they refer to Israel's future. Now, the key to it is that in the Bible, trumpets always represent another stage of God's dealing with Israel. And next, we have the Feast of Trumpets. Now, you've got to get hold of this. We've got Passover, unleavened bread, all right, um, weeks... Um, Hang on, let's, hang on, let, let me go back to my notes, I'm getting confused myself here. Yeah, we've, we've got um, how to get lost in a Bible study. So, right, yes, we've got Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits. Now, that was all Israel's past, alright, Old Testament. When these were given, that all related to Israel's past. Now we get the Feast of Trumpets, and I'm going to show you that this refers to Israel's future that hasn't happened yet. Now, what have they just had in between? We've had Pentecost, which is the feast that represented the church age. Now we've got the Feast of Trumpets, a new beginning for Israel. What have we got here? Well, what we've got here is basically this. Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah. So the Old Testament came to an end. Jesus comes on the scene. Israel rejects Jesus as their Messiah. So what does God do? He rejects Israel and replaces them with the church, which was largely Gentile. So can you see, there you've got the Feast of Pentecost, the church age. But of course, what's going to happen in the future? When the church age is over, you're going to get at the rapture what the Bible calls the last trumpet of God, and the church is removed, which is the point at which God's prophetic clock starts ticking again for Israel. You see? So the Feast of Trumpets signifies the time yet future after the church age when Israel, having been cut out of God's vine, is going to be grafted back into God's vine. And it's this Feast of Trumpets is in their seventh month through their year. This picture of completeness, the whole thing starts up again. The prophetic clock starts ticking for Israel. With the coming of Jesus, they rejected him. On the day of Pentecost, God rejected Israel as his people. All right? Their clock prophetically stopped ticking. You had the church age, Pentecost. But the Feast of Trumpets represents the time when the church goes, the church age is over, the age of Israel returns and the prophetic clock starts ticking again. And that is going to happen at the rapture, which will happen when you get the trumpet of God sounding out. And so, we've got here a four-month gap, alright, and the feast before this was Pentecost. So, 
you've got the first three feasts, very intensive, God working in Israel. Then you've got the Feast of Pentecost, the church age. Then you've got four months with nothing. Because God isn't, I mean, yeah, of course he's working in Israel at the moment, but can you see, as far as God's concerned, it's a nothing for Israel at the moment, because they're cut out, see? But then, the Feast of Trumpets, bang, Israel comes in. And so the prophetic era for Israel starts up again, they're brought back into the land, I mean, a remnant are already there, but of course, the Great Tribulation ends with Jesus coming again, landing on the earth, and ruling from Israel. And, uh, you know, so the point is, in trumpets, what we've got here is kind of Israel getting revved up for the time when they are once more going to be the kingdom of God and when, you know, they're in the land in absolute fullness. So it's future. Next, we have Day of Atonement, which is also future. Now, this happens nine days after trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets, again, one meal, and then nine days later, you get the Day of Atonement. Now, this is, this is the big day, Yom Kippur, as they call it. And this was when the high priest, do you remember we saw in the tabernacle, and remember the tabernacle was just the portable version of the temple that was going to come later, they had the Holy of Holies. You had the main tent, all right, and then inside you had the mini tent, the Holy of Holies, all right, and you had the veil, there was a veil, a curtain, and only the high priest could go in there and only once a year, all right, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And it was this feast when the high priest went behind the veil in the tabernacle or the temple. And it was to make atonement for the people's sins. And remember we saw last time that on the high priest's robe he had the bells. And uh, if, if, if God accepted the sacrifice he lived, if God didn't accept the sacrifice the high priest died. And they were all listening outside. As long as they could hear the jangling bells, they knew that God was receiving the sacrifice, you see. If the jangling stopped, it's, oh dear, he's dead. We better go in and get him. God hasn't accepted the sacrifice, you see. So it's on this day that the high priest goes behind the veil into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin. Now, it is obviously and certainly a picture of Jesus on the cross. Of course it is. That, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, then he rose again. You know, do you remember that the curtain of the temple was split from top to bottom, and the significance of that was that because it was from top to bottom, it was God like reaching down and ripping it from above. You see, because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was removed, and because of Jesus' death, we, we can all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. So all that symbolism is there, certainly. But I think that also there's a greater symbolism again all to do with Israel's future because in the New Testament all right I the church age that the teaching that we get is that Israel is to this day it's got a veil over it hasn't it I mean the gospel is veiled to Israel they can't see it that veil in the temple that Jesus removed all right because he's died for sin but because Israel doesn't accept him. It's like God said, right, okay, I removed the veil. You won't accept it. Here, have another one. And he's actually veiled the mind of Israel. All right. And of course, what we've got here, the high priest going behind the veil, all right, the picture we've got here is of the day when Israel at long last gets past the veil that is between them and God and gets back as a nation into the Holy of Holies. And what we've got here is Paul's teaching that one day that veil is going to be lifted from Israel and Israel will have God face to face as she was always meant to. And you see, what we've got here, the picture in this feast, as well as trumpets, 
you've got the rapture of the church, there's the trumpet. Then the beginning of Israel's age begins again, and through the Great Tribulation, the world is re-evangelized through the 144,000 Jews, so Israel is once again the means of salvation to the world. By the end of the Great Tribulation, they're so trampled underfoot and oppressed by the Antichrist and the armies of the world, that by then Israel have realized that Jesus was their Messiah, and they're crying out to him that he comes again. Remember Jesus said to, you know, sort of to them, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Israel accepts. Jesus and Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom on earth and of course at the second coming what happens there is that Israel is absolutely 100% restored at long last God is their saviour they accept that Jesus is who he said he was and the kingdom comes properly and of course the millennium the thousand year reign of Jesus is the kingdom of God when all the unfulfilled you know, sort of like things in the Bible, all the prophecies about Israel's future, all that hasn't been fulfilled is going to be fulfilled then with an absolute vengeance. So it's, it's speaking of the time when Israel will get through the veil, the veil will be gone and Israel will have her God face to face as he always intended that she would. And of course that will be Israel's national atonement. When that happens, Israel will be saved as a nation. Not talking about the salvation of individual Jews, that can happen at any time, but talking about Israel as a nation. That is when her atonement, that is when her salvation will happen. And then the final feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, also called Booths or Ingathering, which will become obvious um, as I go through it. And in the Feast of tabernacles and again you'll see that as with trumpets and day of atonement this is all to do with the future that Israel is yet to come into alright because this feast was five days after atonement alright and it runs for seven days alright and what happens here is that the Israelites at this feast they were to leave their homes and they were to, to dwell in temporary booths or tents and that is why um, it's, it's called booths um, or tabernacles. A tabernacle was a tent. So the point is, whereas at this time they're still travelling around in tents in the wilderness, even when they got into the land and they had their houses, for this one they were to, to, to leave their houses and pitch tents and to go and live, live rough all right, for seven days and, uh, and to have a real joyous celebration. Now of all the feasts, this one was the biggie. This was the street party. This really was eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, they went absolutely bananas. Um, you know, do you remember when Jesus was transfigured and Peter started prattling on about, oh, shall I make some booths, you know, for you, Lord, and for Moses and Elijah? That was during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And, of course, the point is, the reason that they had to do this, you know, go and you know, move into tents or booths for seven days, was to remind them that when they were in the wilderness, they had to do that. They had to live in tents rather than permanent houses. But here is the real point of it. When Israel lived in tents in the wilderness, where did God live? He lived in a tent as well. When Israel was in the land and lived in solid houses, where did God live? He lived in the temple, a solid house. So the picture that you've got here in the Feast of Tabernacles is that God lived in the same way that they did. When they were in the wilderness living in tents, God lived in a tent. In a tent. 
I always remember once when we were in the Scouts, we uh, actually went camping with the guides and oh, the excitement was really intense. No, um, and so when, when Israel was in the wilderness living in tents, God lived in a tent. When Israel was in the land living in solid houses, God lived in the land in a temple, in a solid house. So the point is, the way that they lived, God lived. Now, what was the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple? It was the fact that Jesus came along and said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he was talking about his body. The point was that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How do we live in the tent of our body? We have physical human frames. God ultimately became a man in Jesus. And Jesus came to live amongst his people as one of them. He became a human being, all right. Now then, the point is that um, here, what you've got is all to do with the fact of God living amongst his people. And of course, the thing is, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. In the future, after the Second Coming, all right, where is God going to be living? He's going to be living physically in Jerusalem in the midst of his people, Israel. And that was what tabernacles was all to do. This feast was to do with where God lives. Now, he lived in the tabernacle, then he lived in the temple, then he lived in, in Jesus, physically. But when Israel is restored at the end of the Great Tribulation, when you get the second coming, the kingdom is established, where will God be living then? He will be physically, Jesus will physically be living in the temple in Jerusalem, running the world from there. And at last, all the prophecies about I shall be their God and they shall be my people, I shall dwell with them and they shall dwell with me, will have become literally true. And so there we have a picture of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. But of course it's even more than that. It points to eventually the eternal state. What happens in the eternal state when the universe is destroyed, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. What happens then? Heaven, God's home, descends and lands on earth, our home. And there you've got it, that God will spend eternity tabernacled or living amongst his people. So the point is, God's got his home, we've got our home, planet earth, but God brings his home to our home. And that is what tabernacles was all about the future when God would literally be living amongst his people in the way that he always wanted to do. And so can you see all those pictures there in the feast? You've got Israel's past brought to being as a nation in God's sight. You've got their rejection in the church age. And then you've got their future from the time of the rapture and the end of the church age onwards, right through into eternity, um, into the eternal state. And so... Can you see that in the, in the feasts, sorry, in the sacrifices that we saw at the beginning of this talk, you have everything you need to know about living the Christian life. In the feasts and the festivals, you, not, you, you, you have a bit more of what you need to know about the Christian life. But in the festivals, you have a prophetic outline of the future of God's plan even to the coming of the church and the eternal state. It's all there. So in the sacrifices, how you live the Christian life here and now. In the feasts and the festivals, it's our future. Right into eternity as God's people. Everything there in those particular things.
Right, okay, pulling to an end now. Uh, we, we, we move on to chapter 24. And in, in there, it just gives various instructions to the priests on how they run the tabernacle and, you know, various teachings about blasphemy, what blasphemy is and how to combat it, blah, blah, blah. Um, in chapter 25, you have the institution um, of two things, what was called the sabbatic year, and then secondly, the year of Jubilee. And what happened was that on the sabbatic year, which was every seventh year, all right, um, all the land was to lie fallow. So the point is, you had a field, and you could plant it for six, six years. And then on the seventh year, it had to lie fallow, all right, in order to, you know, like regroup its strength and blah, blah, blah. But during that time, all right, the poor were free to do what they liked with that field. So there'd be the remainder of crops there, and the poor could wander in and take all they wanted. So it was a little bit of kind of like, you know, social, social services there. You know, that the, 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 the piece of land that was having rest from its owner's use could be used by the poor who didn't have their own land. So that was really, you know, just part of Israel's, you know, little social security system there. Uh, the year of Jubilee was their 50th year. Uh, you, you, you got a cycle of seven times, seven years times seven years equals 49 years. So you get seven sabbatic years, all right, and then you get the 50th year, which was the Jubilee year, um, and various things happened there. Um, in the Jubilee year, all debts were cancelled, so if you owed someone some money, you were forgiven of your debts, because at the end of the day, that's, that, that, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's forgiven us our debts, hasn't he? And when Jesus died on the cross, he proclaimed an eternal Jubilee year. See? All the debts have been cancelled. Um, you could, um, in the year of Jubilee, you could, um, you know, slaves went free. Um, slavery in Israel was not like slavery under the British Empire or anything like that. You could become a slave voluntarily and you got paid for it. But the point was um, that in Jubilee year all slaves were set free. And of course what did Jesus do on the cross? He brought us out of the slave market of sin. He proclaimed an eternal Jubilee year. Um, also if any land had passed out of a family's ownership because of debts or hard times, all right, then that land was returned to their family. So, say you got into bad debt or hard times came on you, drought, famine, something like that, and you could only get out of it by selling a plot of land. Well, in the Jubilee year, that plot of land returned to your tribe, see? And, and it ensured that, that, that the tribes all survived, and so it brought social stability to Israel, as well as, as being an actual, uh, you know, sort of symbol of uh, various aspects um, of the death of Jesus and the Christian life. And then uh, in chapter 26, uh, you get a list of the blessings that God will bestow upon Israel if they obeyed his teaching. And you get a list of the punishments that will come on Israel if they went against his teaching. Um, and then in chapter 27, the final uh, chapter, you get kind of like, you know, the dedication of various things to the Lord and miscellaneous instructions to do with everything that we've covered, um, you know, thus far in the talk tonight. So, um, a lot to take in there, I know, um, but, but, but if, you, if you go away bearing in mind that Leviticus, what it's really about are the sacrificial system, which tells us the things we need to know about living the Christian life, and it tells us all we need to know about the, the feasts of Israel that made up her calendar, and of course that is a preview of the prophetic calendar that God has throughout history and into the future, not only for Israel, but us as well as the church. So then, the sacrificial system, our personal Christian lives before the Lord, here and now, today, the day of salvation is now, as the Bible says. 
the feasts and the festivals is our future calendar as God's people, what we can yet expect God to be doing, not here and now, but in the future as he brings his whole plan of salvation and redemption to its climax in the restoration of Israel, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, and then the new heavens and the new earth and the establishment of the eternal state when heaven lands on earth. Next time, numbers. Whew.